All right, good. And take your Bibles, go to Daniel, and we'll look at this very interesting chapter. We're starting to get into some very uh, neat stuff, a lot of typology, a lot of pictures and stuff like that, that uh, will be interesting to learn about. I'm going to read you, uh, I couldn't fit all the information on this sheet, so I'm going to read you an opening paragraph that I had, that I would have put on here, but I didn't have enough room. Um, <clears throat> we'll go to Daniel chapter 7. The dream and visions that Daniel receives in this chapter occurred during the first year that Belshazzar began ruling in Babylon. These visions would have occurred 14 years before the feast of Belshazzar, the night he died, and, the, and lost the kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the visions are concerning the four Gentile world empires and the final everlasting kingdom with Jesus Christ as its king. This chapter also introduces to us the Antichrist, who will be the last king of the fourth worldly kingdom. And so this lesson, <clears throat> I'm really just going to talk about the four beasts and some introductory stuff. And then I plan on probably doing a whole lesson on Little Horn or the Antichrist. And then I'd like to do one on the, uh, the kingdom, the final kingdom, and that's Christ's kingdom. And we'll do that after this. But today we got to focus on the four great beasts. And so Daniel chapter 7, let's read verses 1 till 3. It says, in the first year, <clears throat> my voice is still not back, is it? In the first year, Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head, up, uh, of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Father, I just ask that you would give me the strength I need in my voice. And Lord, just help us to glean something from this chapter this, this night. And I pray you just give me the power to preach it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, number one, let's look at Daniel and the dream. Uh, looking at some introductory type of comments here. Letter A, Daniel received the dream while he was upon his bed at night. At first, if you'd read chapter, verse number one, you can see that it says that he has visions of his head upon his bed, but you say, well, he could be having an afternoon nap too, <laughs> amen. But then when you look up at verse number seven, it says, after this, I saw in the night visions, amen. So he was actually, during the night, he was on his bed, just so you know that, amen. You want to get the picture of what's happening here. Uh, letter B, the dream contained several prophecies of the four kingdoms, Notice what it says. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head. So first you have dream, which is a singular uh, thing, and then visions is plural. And so within this one dream, he had several visions or several prophecies that the Lord was telling him at this one dream that he's getting here. So the dream is one continuous dream. Uh, that occurred while Daniel slept that night. And visions is the manifold nature of the revelation. Uh, there were many characteristics of this particular dream. Uh, vision can be received while one is awake. But because it was a dream, Daniel's were visions that occurred while he slept at night. And so you don't have dreams while you're awake, but you can't have a vision while you're awake. 
And we see that throughout the scriptures. Uh, a prophet could be awake and he'd get a vision. But if you have a dream, you got to be sleeping. <laughs> Amen, just so you know that. Isn't this interesting stuff? It is. All right, <laughs> number one. <laughs> These four kingdoms will dominate during the time period Jesus referred to as the time of the Gentiles. And we see that in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, where he said, And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So since Israel was taken captive to Babylon, and until Jesus Christ returns in the second coming, that's all the time, times of the Gentiles. So why is that so important? Why, why are these Gentile kingdoms so important? You've got to remember this. The Lord established Israel to be an empire. It was supposed to be the ruling nation of the world. Just like Babylon was, <clears throat> just like Persia and whatever. Israel was supposed to be that nation, but God was supposed to be the king. And he couldn't establish it because of the lack of faith within, within his subjects, you see. So what he did is he set them aside and he put a determined amount of time upon the world where Israel wouldn't be a ruling nation. And all you'd see was Gentiles ruling. And that's what we're living in today. And ultimately, when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to restore that initial plan of having Israel as the ruling nation. And then you'll see exactly what God planned right from the beginning. All right. And then you'll also know the failure of the Gentiles without the God of heaven. <laughs> Amen. In all these empires that we're looking at today. And so... Israel was always meant to be the ruling nation. Number two, these are the same four kingdoms represented by, the, by different metals in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we saw that in Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. And Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar, Thou, O king, sawest, and behold, a great image, this great image whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible, the image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Letter C, Daniel wrote the sum of the matters in a book. And I thought that was an interesting word as well, where it says, then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Um, <clears throat> some question that Daniel's actually the writer of the book of Daniel. I don't know why they would do that, but this verse is one that proves to you that he actually wrote down <laughs> the dream in a book. Amen? And he also just wrote the sum of it. And that means the, the main substance of the dream was written down. But I mean, Daniel, <clears throat> as he was perceiving all of this, you can be sure that he saw a lot more detail than he's letting on in the scriptures uh, as he saw, had his eyes upon this in his vision. And so that's why it says that he told the sum, the sum of it, uh, not always all the detail. Amen. Uh, letter D, Daniel was grieved and troubled in his heart and mind during this. In fact, twice in this chapter, you'll see that in verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body, 
and the visions of my head troubled me. And then at the end of the chapter, so you had one in the middle and one on the end, it says, hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my, my cogitations much troubled me and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. And so being grieved means that he was agitated, he was worried, uh, he had uh, a, a definitely a, a fearful set of emotions happening here. The word troubled means to be in a hurry or to be disturbed. I don't know about you, when you ever get troubled, you feel like there's, you, you need to do something, but you can't. And you, you feel like you're kind of <laughs> locked in a corner, yet you want to make something happen, but you can't. You're not at rest. And that's what he felt as he saw these. And the interesting, both of these verses that talk about him being troubled occur right after he reveals Jesus Christ coming and destroying the kingdoms. Once in the middle of the chapter and once at the end. And both times he said that he was troubled and grieved was when he saw these kingdoms destroyed and Jesus Christ coming to set up his kingdom. So what an amazing thing that must have been to see Jesus destroy everything that we know <laughs> in that vision. And of course, he was living in one of these kingdoms, you see. And so it was probably very troubling for him to see that. Number two, the seas in the dream. <clears throat> so there's two different seas that are mentioned here. I'm going to give you this first. Letter A, the four winds are four fallen angelic princes ruling over each world kingdom. And so, notice what it says here in verse 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. They strove upon the great sea. Now, we know, number one, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He, you know, even with Job, he blew down the, his children's home and killed his sons. He controls the wind, <laughs> you know. And so Satan is the prince of power here. We see it in Ephesians 2, verse 2. It says, Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So the word spirit uh, is defined, if you look it up, as breath or air. So Satan and his princes operate in the atmosphere, they operate in space. So I think they probably spend most of their time traveling through the atmosphere. But I do think they also spend time in space itself, you see. But there's no wind in space. And so I think the practical aspect of their, what they're trying to do is happening within the atmosphere. But I also know that Satan does set up localities on Earth. That means there are certain places on earth that he will set up shop to work from. And we see that even in Revelation 2.13. It says, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where <coughs> Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. And so there you had Satan's seat. That means there was a locality that he was working from in that particular area to do his damage around. And I think that what we need to do is understand that the demonic world is real and that will keep us a lot smarter, <laughs> amen? Keep us a lot more spiritual. 
Because if you start negating the aspect of the demonic realm, you're going to do things that you will regret. Amen. Because there's certain behavior that Satan actually is attracted to and gives him ground to in your life. And that's why you keep your guards up. You protect yourself against that kind of influence. And that's why the book of Ephesians says, neither give place to the devil. And so <clears throat> sometimes people are trying to overcome something, but they can't seem to overcome it because they've given ground. And Satan has a hold in their soul. And that's because they have given him permission to take that particular place. Number two, there are ruling demonic principalities fighting for dominance in the world. All right. <clears throat> now, the word strove means a breaking forth or a churning up. It is used of the four winds of heaven, churning the sea. Now, we know that our battle, <clears throat> according to the scripture, is not with one another. It's with these demonic principalities. It says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And so I believe there's a hierarchy. I believe just like your army, you'll have a colonel and a major, and you'll have soldiers, foot soldiers. I think you have the same thing within the demonic realm. You'll have Satan, you'll have his generals, you'll have these main principalities that look over these kingdoms. And then from there, they just break down into more practical uh, ways that they influence people. And uh, it's interesting. I was reading this week an article <clears throat> about a man in Africa who had, who had this guy that he was working with that used to be a witch doctor, and he was one of the youngest witch doctors ever to exist in Africa. He was only 25 years old. And he had actually, uh, this witch doctor could do all kinds of very strange things when he was, when he was lost, where he could actually, he was called, uh, he, he, I forget the name of it, um, a, a soul stealer, a, um, a child soul stealer. And so what he could do is he could, he could send, he could make issues happen in different villages, which would cost the life of children. And they would say that he would, or a soul eater is what they call them, a child soul eater. And this is what he would do. He would pronounce curses and children would die in different villages. Now this Baptist preacher talked to him. Uh, one day he got this book sent from the States and it was a, it was a book on Pokemon. And Pokemon, of course, it, was, it had the list of all the little creatures that they have in there. So just out of curiosity one day, he was, this guy was over and he said to him, he says, what do you think about this? And he pointed to these little creatures and this guy knew the name of every Pokemon character, though he's never read Pokemon or seen the cartoons, and he knew what power they had. <laughs> he said, these are, these are under spirits in the demonic world and their sole purpose is to lead children into the spirit world. That's their whole purpose. So that one Pokemon was a one that would bite and scratch. That was their power. 
And he knew that before he read the book. He said, that particular one scratches and bites. <laughs> and he would go through them all. And he said he almost had every one of them nailed down. He'd never known Pokemon before, the cartoon. And so I say stay away from Pokemon. <laughs> Amen. Burn those books. Burn those tapes. In fact, this missionary's kid <clears throat> was taken with Pokemon and had a video, a cassette tape, a VHS that he would be watching these cartoons. So he called his son down and he said, listen, listen to this. And he put the book in front of the guy and he says, explain to him. And this guy just went over and he explained the whole thing. The child went upstairs, came back with his tape, says, dad, we need to destroy this. <laughs> See, there's a spiritual world. And so we don't just let our kids get involved in every cartoon that they, that's out there. <laughs> it's craziness. This whole world, the prince of the power of the air, He's influencing children and trying to draw them into this spiritual world. <laughs> like the Colossians talks about um, <coughs> uh, vainly intruding into those things which they don't know, they don't understand, you see. And so it's very important we know this. So number three, <coughs> excuse me, truth concerning these princes is found in Daniel chapter 10. And I'm going to read you a couple of verses here. In Daniel chapter 10, verse number 12, it says this. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before God, thy words were heard, and I come for thy words. He's talking about fasting and prayer. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one in twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. And so there's a, there's a hierarchy of power here, and there was one particular one that was known as the prince of the kingdom of Persia. And this was a demonic being that was keeping him from delivering the answer to Daniel, <laughs> because it had everything to do with the coming kingdom, Persia. You see, and that's what this demon was fighting for. Uh, verse number 20, it says, the angel said to Daniel, Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia? And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. And that's the next world empire. And so he's saying, we're fighting this demon right now, but after we're done with this, another one's going to come on the scene, and that's the prince of Grecia. <laughs> the Greece, the kingdom of Greece, which is the next beast that's coming up as well. And so I just want you to see this, that these four winds strove on the great sea. We're talking about demonic powers fighting for the kingdoms. So I, I want to make this real to us. I'm not trying to spook you. I'm not trying to go, ooh, wow, you know. I'm trying to warn us because <laughs> it's real. And we're battling that even within our church today. We're battling these demonic forces. And that's why sometimes I take things very seriously when things happen, <laughs> you know, because I don't play with this stuff. And we fight. And, of course, people are going to be the way that he uses people to cause problems. But the heart of that is demonic. And that's what we're fighting against. 
the demons. Amen. That's who we wrestle against, not against the people. All right. Uh, letter B. The great sea is the Mediterranean Sea. Number one, all of the world empires have their beginning around the Mediterranean Sea. So this is a very important area here. Uh, the first dominion was given to Babylon starting in the Far East. <clears throat> and it's interesting because as each kingdom gains power, it's moving further west. Each empire moves further west. That's kind of interesting. Starts on the east, moves to the west. Rome was the farthest west on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. Babylon was on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, Israel, <coughs> number two, had its boundary on the Great Sea and is in a strategic place that connects continents, becoming a highway that travelers must pass. And so uh, that's where the Promised Land is. It's right along that whole eastern shoreline of the Mediterranean Sea. And so Africa, Asia, uh, Europe, they all meet in that one spot. That's where the, the highway travels through. And that's why the Lord chose that area, because the millennial reign, as people travel <laughs> back and forth, <clears throat> they're going to be traveling through Israel. And they're going to be taught as they travel through. And that's pretty cool. Amen. In fact, Isaiah 19, verse 22, it says, And the Lord uh, shall smite Egypt, <coughs> excuse me, and heal it, and they shall return even to the Lord. So e Egypt's going to return to the Lord. They're going to be a nation in the millennial kingdom. It says, And he shall be entreated of them and shall heal them. In that day shall there be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria. Now, Assyria is on the north side of Israel. Egypt's on the south side. And there'll be a highway passing between these two. And it says, And Assyria shall come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptian shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt, and with Assyria even a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Isn't that cool? <laughs> you know, <clears throat> we just look at Assyria, enemies need to be destroyed. The Lord knows their enemies, but he's going to heal them. And they're going to actually turn back to God. And these nations will serve God together with Israel. That's very interesting. Now, letter C, the sea, here you see in uh, verse number three, it says, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. So now it's not the great sea, now it's just the sea. This refers to the earth that the four kingdoms come up out of. Uh, I'll read you Daniel 7, 3, I'll read you Daniel 7, 17. These great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall rise out of the earth. In Revelation 13, verse 1, you see the same typology here. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, 
and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having ten heads and ten horns, or seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. All right, let's go to number two, the beasts of the dream, letter A. The great beasts are four kings. Now the kings always set the character of the kingdom. That means a kingdom is like the king, all right? Whatever the king is like, that's what the kingdom's going to be like. Whatever the father is like in the home, that's what the family's going to be like. You understand? The authority always sets the tone of those underneath it. And so these four kings. So in the scripture, the Lord uses types, similes, metaphors to reveal characteristics about the subject at hand. We're going to see that here. In chapter 2, the Lord used inanimate objects like gold, silver, brass, iron, and clay to represent the kingdoms. In chapter 7, the Lord is using animate creatures to represent these kings and kingdoms. So chapter 2, we're talking about, we're just looking at the value of the kingdom and how the value degrades from the head down to the toe, from the beginning down to the end. Chapter 7, we're not looking at value, we're looking at force, we're looking at power, we're looking at movement, and that's why he uses animate objects or animals to actually uh, show the truth about these kingdoms. So number one, these kings rise out of the earth, these men, these were men that Satan sought to use to exercise dominion over man, which are God's creation. These men also represent the kingdoms they rule. Many times the kingdoms would take on the characteristics of those that ruled it and so forth. Number two, these kings are diverse. That means they're different. That's what it says in verse three and four great beasts came out of the sea, diverse one from another. The word diverse means it refers to a difference that has become evident in something or persons. They have changed. And so this particular word is used three times in this chapter. And it's used once, talking about the four great beasts are diverse one from another. And in verse 19 and verse 23, it's talking about the fourth beast and saying how the fourth beast is diverse from all the other three beasts, you see. So they're all diverse, they're all different. But then when you get to the fourth one, it is completely different than all the other three. And so they use this word diverse three times to, to show that. Now letter B, <coughs> the first beast was a lion, representing supremacy of Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. I'm going to see if I can pull up that picture. There you go. So a lion with wings. It says in the first line of verse 4, was like a, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked. And it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Uh, we see that in Jeremiah as well, uh, how Jeremiah referred to Babylon as a lion. It says in Jeremiah 4, verse 7, The lion has come up from, the, from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make thy land desolate, and thy cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. So number one, the lion is the king of the beasts, being strong and majestic, as was Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon 
in its glory. All right. Number two, the lion had wings, revealing the swiftness that Nebuchadnezzar was able to conquer its enemies. And in the beginning there, uh, they just really showed a lot of strength, a lot of force, a lot of speed, taking all these major nations like Egypt and so forth. Egypt just kind of bowled right over on Nebuchadnezzar. And so um, uh, I've got a verse, we'll move on. Number three, the lion's wings were plucked, revealing the weakened ability to conquer following Nebuchadnezzar. And so he started strong, but then began to lose that momentum of taking over the world. All right. Number four, the lion was lifted up from the earth, represented the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar. After he was saved, his focus was set towards heaven and its everlasting kingdom. You see that in verse 34 of Daniel 4. It says this, And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. So something happened here. There's a change that took place in Babylon. Number five, the lion stood on its feet like a man and was given a man's heart. This represents the changing focus of Babylon, becoming more peaceful, losing its earthly desire for war. And we saw that even with the succeeding kings, you'll see uh, evil Meredith, who was um, Nebuchadnezzar's, I believe it was a grandson. Uh, my brain isn't working there. But anyways, when he became king for a very short time, he, he was actually assassinated. But he actually released one of the kings of Israel that they had in prison for all those years. So when he, became, when he came into power, he actually took him out of the prison. He restored him, gave him a position in Babylon, and let him eat at the king's table with him and for the rest of his life. And so you can see how the impact of Nebuchadnezzar and his salvation, his attitude towards the Jews affected his children. They didn't have that animosity towards the Jews. That only came later again, all right, uh, with, with the other rulers and so forth. And so the lion, when the lion's on its four, four feet, it's ready to pounce. If a lion was standing on two feet, there's no pouncing going on. <laughs> it's just standing there. And so it lost its, its, its desire to hunt and kill and destroy. And it became more uh, peaceful. Letter C, the second beast is a bear representing the fierceness and size of the Medes and the Persians. And this, of course, is a bear. You can see that with the three ribs in his mouth. It says in verse number five, And behold, another beast, a second like, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. It had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. So it was a slow army. It wasn't like Babylon. It definitely isn't like Greece, but it's a, like a big, clunky army. And they overtook nations simply by the size of their army. There'd just be no way the enemy could, could take on all those soldiers. They went into, uh, where was it? Um, when they went into Greece, 
They brought two and a half million soldiers, the army of Persia, two and a half million. You think you'd find that many in the United States army? <laughs> when they're talking army in the States, they're talking 200,000, 300,000. You know, they go to Afghanistan, how many they send there? Maybe 10,000, 20, I don't know. But we're talking two and a half million. <laughs> so they would go in simply by, by force and just roll over this kingdom. They didn't have a chance. So it was like a big bear, <laughs> amen? Fierce and destroying as it went along. And number one, the bear raised up itself on one side, revealing that one of, revealing that Persia was stronger than the other. I don't know how you're, I think I changed it on your worksheet, but uh, I can maybe look at this. Yeah, revealing that Persia was stronger. And so, number two, uh, because it was the Medes and the Persians, and so one half, and same with, and you'll see in Daniel 8, when it talks about the ram, the ram also represents the Medes and Persians. One of the horns is bigger than the other. So the Persian army was bigger than the Median army. And so number two, the bear had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, probably revealing, now nobody knows for sure. I've read after guys, you know, they say it could represent the three nations or three kingdoms of, that have been assimilated into it. And that's Babylon, the Medes, and the Persians. But more, more people would go with the fact that there was three major kingdoms that they had already destroyed, and that was Lydia, Egypt, and Babylon. And so those were the ribs that the bear was chewing on. It had already been chewing down a couple of kingdoms, and that's what the ribs that were in his mouth. So that's what we're going to hold to here. And so in Esther, uh, no, sorry, so this empire, what it would do is it would build its massive armies, taking in the conquered kingdoms, taking those armies and adding them to their army. So that's why their army just kept getting bigger. They'd destroy a nation. They'd take all those armies, make them a part of their army. And so really it's probably the fact the three ribs are just the assimilation of those three, those three nations brought into the army going and devouring alongside. And so, number three, the ribs told the bear to devour much flesh, revealing the size of the kingdom's conquest, covering more than 2,000 miles and 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And you see that in Esther 1 verse 1. It says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This is the Ahasuerus which reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 177 and 20 provinces. And so there you have it written in the scriptures how much land that they had already conquered. Letter D, <coughs> the third beast was a leopard representing the speed and agility of the Alexander the Great's Grecian army. So this is the fourth kingdom. Boy, that's a nice pixelated picture. You don't see that until you actually get it up on the screen. It says in verse number six, After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon its back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
Now, number one, the leopard had four wings on its back, revealing the speed by which Greece defeated Persia. Greece was completely outnumbered. And so something special had to happen here for, for Greece to actually beat Persia. And it really what it was is simple strategy. They really knew how to fight. They knew how to take a small army and defeat many soldiers with that small army. And they would do that. Uh, one of the major things was they had different, and you'd, you've probably seen this on different documentaries, where they had ways of interlocking shields together. And then when the army came, they would be like a wall. And as they got closer, they would be jabbing spears through, killing the people as they're coming at them, <laughs> you know. And so they're being protected. Nothing's hurting them, but they're able to get their spears through, long spears, and, and kill soldiers that are eight feet away from their shields. And they did that. Uh, plus, they learned how to wedge. They used the different uh, strategies on how to wedge through in a big army and destroy that way. And so they, it was a simple strategy, <laughs> using the shield. Uh, basically, the shield is what won them that victory. You know, without shields, it wouldn't have won. But it's just learning and, and, de and designing the shields to interlock so they could connect into the next guy and there'd be no way they could pull those shields apart. And so they were just pretty brilliant, you know, when it comes to it. There's books written about his strategy. Uh, number two, the leopard had four heads revealing the four generals that would rule over the kingdom after Alexander died. And... We see that in Daniel 8, verse 8. Once again, it says, Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. The horn is a picture of power. And, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. All right? And so from that one horn being broken off, four sprung up. And that was talking about how Alexander, when he died, his four generals took over. Now remember, this is all being prophesied long before it took place. But it happened exactly like that. <laughs> exactly. And so there, there was four generals. One was Cassander. And he ruled over Macedon and Greece. Then you had Lysimachus, is Asia Minor and Thrace. You had Seleucus with Syria and Mesopotamia. Then you had Ptolemy, which is Egypt and Palestine. Interesting, Titus... Uh, the Roman um, general that was, was sent to overcome Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, he came from the Syrian branch of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire took these four and divided them into two, like the two legs of the, of the, of the image. Um, and it's interesting because Titus came from that particular area and it's interesting because the Bible tells us that the prince that shall come, uh, the prince of the people that shall come, when it's talking about those that destroyed in AD 70. So really what it's saying is, is that the Antichrist is going to come from the one, from the people of the prince that overtook Jerusalem in AD 70. So a lot of people think then that the Antichrist will come from either the Syria or Mesopotamia part of the world because it's, it's from those people that this future Antichrist 
is going to come from. All right, anyways, we'll look at that later. Uh, just a thought. <laughs> All right. Letter E. The fourth beast is a dreadful, terrible, and exceedingly strong beast and is representing Rome. Rome, and we see this in verse number seven. Isn't that a terrible beast? It says, And this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth, it devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So there's no animal that can describe this beast. That's how awesome that beast is. There's no animal created by God that could explain. Now, I've seen different pictures. Somebody will have a, a T-Rex or something. <laughs> no. <laughs> no animal. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so it was dreadful. That means it was fearful. That word also means to slink. So it's almost like a slithering beast. It was terrible. It was terrifying. It was frightful. Strong exceedingly. It means a superior massive power and massive influence that this beast had. Number one, the beast had great iron teeth that devours and break in pieces. This reveals the total brutality that characterized the Roman Empire. And there really was no other empire that was as brutal as the Romans. They were worse than them all. Now, um, and iron, of course, is extremely strong metal that is used in all weaponry, all the swords, anything that killed. That's why it's talking about iron here. All right, number two, this beast stamps out the residue with his feet, represents how simply overcoming their enemies would not be sufficient. They wouldn't just go in, oh, do you give up? Well, here, send us some money, we'll let you live. They would go in there and just decimate. They would stamp down the people. Any survivors would be sold into slavery or killed or used as entertainment in the Colosseum. Like not a lot of other, like even Nebuchadnezzar, when he went to Israel and he, he, he besieged Jerusalem, <laughs> he allowed them to continue if they would pay tribute. So really, they could have just gone on if they would have just paid tribute to Babylon. But the king, Zedekiah, got all proud and rebellious. And Jeremiah was telling them, submit yourself to the chastening of God. If you don't, you'll regret it. And so he withheld the tribute, started to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar came in and pulverized Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And it was basically because of the Israelites that he did that. They could have continued, <laughs> you know. Rome wouldn't have asked. <laughs> they did just say, we're coming in. If they would besiege a, a city, they would, they would see them eat their dead before they would let them go. In fact, I think Carthage was a city that they actually besieged, had 250,000 people. By the time they were done, there was only 50,000 people left. That's how many people had died just from lack of food, water, and they just kept a clamp on them until they actually gave up. And then when they gave up, they totally destroyed them. And they, they killed them, they murdered them, and then the survivors, they sold them into slavery. So I wouldn't give up either. I'd say I'd rather starve to death, you know. The Romans were just brutal. Um, they persecuted, 
killed Christians from the emperors Nero all the way to Diocletian, right before Constantine. So hundreds of years, they were destroying Christians. They were burning them, they were making candles out of them, putting them in their gardens, lighting them on fire. And they'd have parties while these Christians were burning, covered in wax in their gardens. Uh, they would throw them into the Colosseum, watch the lions eat them, uh, or torture them. Just for, and the people of Rome would just cheer it on. It was entertainment, you know. That was Rome. Um, they executed the Apostle Paul, many other church leaders and followers. Uh, the Roman Empire crucified the Son of God on a device of their invention, the cross. And so you can't say there's a worse one than Rome. <laughs> they were the worst. Uh, they destroyed Jews. They raised Jerusalem. Uh, once they overcame Jerusalem, they wouldn't even let the people back into their own city. They replaced the Jewish temple with a pagan temple out of spite. They would sell their captives or any survivors into slavery. Number three, this beast was different from all the beasts before it. No known living creature could be found to represent it. So it was different. Number four, this beast had ten horns representing ten kings that will rule within it in the last days. You see that verse 7, I, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and had great iron teeth that devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And we see a little further down the chapter, verse 24, it says, And the ten horns of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. Literary horns in the scripture represent power. The horn of an animal is always used in defense or offense. It was used to kill. It was used to destroy, you know. And so it represents power. Um, Habakkuk 3, 4, says, And his brightness was as a light. He had horns coming out of his hand. And there was the hiding of his power. Uh, letter B, the ten kings corresponded to the toes of the great image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, it doesn't say ten toes. I, was, I thought it did say ten. It doesn't in Daniel chapter 2. Maybe he only had eight toes. <laughs> Maybe he had eleven. No, I think it was ten. But verse 41, it says, And whereas thou see, sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. Number five, three of the ten kings will be uprooted, and a little horn, the Antichrist, will take their place. And we see that in a couple of places here, Daniel chapter 7, verse number 20. What? Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Who does that look like? <laughs> I guess it doesn't look so dreadful. <laughs> and it says in verse 20, And the ten horns that were in his head, and of one of the other which came up and before whom three fell, even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, 
whose look was more stout than his fellows. Now that's a stout horn there. <laughs> and also verse 24, it says, And the ten horns of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So here is how we know <laughs> these kings will all exist at the same time uh, of the Antichrist during the tribulation. So some people say, well, these kings represent maybe the ten emperors of Rome. But how can he uproot three of them at one time and take power? And so all these ten kings are going to be in power at the time of the tribulation week. And he's going to take over three of them, maybe by choice. I don't know, they were going to be uprooted somehow. And he is going to take their place and look very funny doing it. Amen? Now letter F. <laughs> The Son of Man will come to destroy the fourth beast and establish an everlasting kingdom on earth. And so we have several passages within this chapter. We'll go through this later, but I just wanted to kind of close the, the thought here of the four beasts. Uh, the Son of Man will come and will destroy that fourth beast and the little horn, and he'll establish his everlasting kingdom. And we'll get into that detail maybe next week.